Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Mark. Uh, I'm an assistant pastor here at the church. And Rob is out of town and has asked me to fill in and asked me to specifically speak on something that uh, we went through um, on Sunday nights with the alternative service. And so I get to talk about arguably my two favorite things in the world, which is Jesus and business. And so, um, but first, if you don't have a Bible um, or even a fake one on your phone, if you could just put your hands up. We've got Bibles here. Um, Israel, Tim, so the others will give you a Bible. Um, you want that in your hand and reading it, so you know I'm not making this stuff up. And so, if you can open up to Matthew chapter 5, pretty prolific section of Scripture. We're going to take a look at some words from Jesus and then get into our study. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, first book of the New Testament. And let me start it off, let me set it up this way. Um, We recently went through a study on Sunday nights. We have an alternative service, which during the school year is is like 90, 95% college students. Um, Really cool time, and so I I lead the teaching efforts for that. And under Rob's vision, we recently went through a study, a seven-week study. Actually, I think we did it in like nine, because we had an intro and outro. But there was seven weeks that we took a look at um, what's being called the seven mountains of cultural influence. And so big categories that you can't get away from in some way, shape, or form, regardless of what you do for a living, you are impacted as an American. You come into contact with these seven mountains, i.e. arts and entertainment, business, education, religion, politics, so on and so forth. And so we go through these major mountains, and I, I spoke on business as, as the seven mountain and the ways in which we're able to glorify God through business. So um, Rob asked me to teach on that, and so if you were there for that Sunday night, um, welcome back. As you remember, there was a lot of info, so it probably wouldn't hurt to hear it again. Um, If you're new, I don't know if you ever drank from a fire hydrant before, but it's going to feel a little bit like that. And so, um, but just know I've got some um, emails from the first service. If you're like, wow, that went fast and there was a lot, just come up, give me your email. I'm happy to shoot you my sermon notes. I'm in the habit of doing that with Sunday night. The college students are like, send them, send them. Um, and so let me know. Um, so this is adapted from that. Just kind of change the title a little bit for a more general setting. And we're going to be talking about business as worship, not the worship of business, the exact opposite, business as worship. And so if you don't know me or my story, you may not know that I am an assistant pastor, but I am not on staff here. And so um, I've had that, Rob and I joke, we've, we've had the conversation twice, I think, in the last five years about coming on staff, and, and, and he totally understands it. But, but my, my response to him was, Rob, it's not that I don't feel called to ministry, it's that I feel entirely called to the business world. And so I come to you today as both a, a passionate pastor, but also a passionate professional. And so I, um, I've been doing marketing, online digital marketing, since 2003 when MySpace kicked off. And so that's when I graduated college. I'm 14 plus years. Um, I'm currently director of marketing and digital commerce at a sales and marketing firm in Calabasas. I've worked at various businesses around the area, Camarillo, Thousand Oaks, where I was at Sage Publications for a while. Lots of different industries, but I'm always doing the same thing, which is marketing and e-commerce. And so, um, as I said, I'm, I'm both 
passionate pastor, and, and that's why I love to talk about Jesus, but I'm also a passionate professional, and I love to talk about business. I'm also a three-time entrepreneur. Um, for those of you that have started businesses, I know what that's like, especially in California. Um, I've started three, still operating my most recent one in form of a clothing company, and so um, not only have the full-time job, but have I go home, and people are like, wow, you go home and work more? But for me, it's, it's, it's what I love to do. So I, I do digital marketing during the day, and I go home and after some playtime and some bedtime and some Bible time with the kids, I start doing digital marketing again because that's just what I love to do. And so it's not work for me. It's business as worship, if you will. So, um, but I, I have, I kind of have an inkling. I, I believe at least. I want to see if I'm wrong. Don't do the classic American Christian thing where they say raise your hand and you don't because you think you're too, for, too cool for school. Okay. You're like, no, I'm not going to raise my hand. This is dumb. Okay. So I, I want to, I have, a, I have a, a hunch that this only applies to every single person in the room, but I want to confirm that. And with a couple questions, so I want you to raise your hand. I want you to keep them up, get a little shoulder workout. You can switch halfway through if you need to, okay? Um, but I've got a couple questions because I want to see if this topic in any way relates to you where you are. Um, do I have any business founders or owners in the room? Mostly because I just want to hang out with y'all afterwards. And so um, business found, keep them up. You got to keep it up. It's a shoulder workout. I get it. Get over it. Um, and so do we have any C-suite executives? CEO, COO, CFO, keep your hands up. Everyone keeps their hands up. No? Any V-suite, vice presidents? D-suite, directors? Do we have any managers at a business? Whether they're a senior or junior? Do we have any entry-level people at any? Does anyone work for a business? I noticed you all are wearing clothes today. Thank you. Which means, has anyone purchased anything from a business? Some of you are still confused by the questions. That's fine. Um, If you are, does anyone here work for the public sector? Which, by the way, is funded by what? Not the government. By the private sector. Anyone here work for nonprofits, which are sustained by what? The contributions from? Private business. Okay. So, um, is anyone breathing? Some refuse. That's fine. That's a, I told you it was coming. In some way, shape, or form, we're all touched on this in some way. And I, I want to give you a recommendation regardless of your work. Regardless, because what this is not going to be is theology of work. We're going to get right to business. This is not the theology of work or how the gospel applies. Um, I have taught on that in the past. But if I can recommend a book, regardless of what you do, regardless of the industry, the setting, the title, your history, it's by a guy by the name of Tim Keller. The book is Every Good Endeavor. He co-authored it with, um, I believe Catherine was president at his church. So Tim Keller teaches in Manhattan, arguably the global epicenter of business. Um, I I was in New York on business. Um, during the epic snowstorm last winter and got stuck there for four extra days and actually got to walk to Tim Keller's church and he was preaching live at that campus, so I really lucked out. He has an entire center for faith and works that he's established because he knows that that's what New York is constantly buzzing about. Um, and so I believe Catherine was the president of the Center for Faith and Works. I could be wrong on that at the time. And so she writes this with Timothy Keller. Um, he does a lot of, of mentoring on the faith and work side. So again, every good endeavor, this, and the subtitle is Connecting Your Work to God's Work. So regardless of what your work is, highly recommend this. I check with Rob. It's okay that I recommend this. Um, and so this is far more about the theology of work and connecting it. We're going to get directly into business because I don't know if you know this, but to the dismay of some, to the dismay of some, the Bible does not command 
It does not demand free market capitalism, but to the dismay of others, you need to know that the Bible certainly allows for it and it protects it in some regards as we're going to see. And so we worship Jesus as God who came into this world as the God man and chose to run a business with his dad. People say, well, where's that in the Bible? There wasn't much to write about because he got up and went to work. Like, did anyone write a book of the Bible about your day to day? Not really. Like, not mine, certainly. Like, wow, email again. You know, like, Jesus likely began at the age of 12 as an apprenticeship with his dad's for profit carpentry business. And carpentry wasn't carpets, by the way, back then. It was mostly stone, actually. If you go to Israel, littered with stone, most of the architecture is based off stone, that's why the ruins are still there. And so Jesus worked as a construction worker for 18 years, didn't start preaching until he was 30. Okay, so you, you read about the early part, like, wow, he grew in wisdom and knowledge of the Lord. He was about the God's business. And all of a sudden, he stands up and he's preaching. What we missed was the 18 years of Monday through Saturday, Jesus waking up, having breakfast with his family, his brothers, his sisters, his parents, stepdad, getting together his equipment, going out to job sites, bidding on jobs, possibly losing some jobs to other construction workers, going and getting supplies, organizing tasks, management, possibly hiring and firing, sweating. I I often think about the fact, the Bible doesn't say this, but I often wonder if Jesus was on the street building, on his hands and knees, putting together a porch as the Pharisees come floating by in their man dresses, um, perfectly clean and white. And they, they look at this poor sap that's on his knees, breaking rocks and building things like, oh, oh, to be poor. And it's God. Sweating with calloused hands, cutting himself, bleeding. Little did they know that that was the blood of the Son of God on the work site. And so Jesus himself co-owned and ran a business. And I had you open to Matthew 5 for a peculiar reason. But when we did the seven mountains of cultural influence, this was really our anchor text. And I want to show you why. So we'll just begin reading. I'll jump in a couple times. We're going to read through verse 16, but we'll start at one. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he, that's Jesus, went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. It says that Jesus came preaching and teaching, two different things. And so today, whereas maybe if you've heard me in the past, you know, I tend to, I, I really do love preaching, but I also really love teaching. It's going to be a little more systematic. It's going to be a little more formulaic. You're going to hear things repeated. It's called signposting. We're going to be a little bit more on the format side, not so much on the bold proclamation of the gospel side. There will be some of that, but it says Jesus came preaching and teaching. In this moment, he taught them. And he says this, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. I want to say this, is that he does not allow you to enter this calling. He's about to call them into something radical and world-changing, not only life-changing, but world-changing. And so, but before he does that, he has to set a humble predisposition. And so he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, this doesn't mean you're depressed. This doesn't mean that you are weak. In fact, the definition of strength is, is, is meekness under control. But he says, but we do acknowledge as Christians, we do acknowledge that we are poor in spirit in a sense that we of our own volition could do nothing apart from the external person, the work of Jesus Christ. He came to us when we could not save ourselves. It's, it's that we ran into the waves and we didn't know how to swim and we're churning and we're turning at Zuma Beach and he had to come into the water and pull us out. In that point, we were poor in spirit. 
We were unable to save ourselves. And so this isn't about, hey, be awesome at business, be dominant, go out there and crush it and kill it. He says, this begins with a very humble understanding that we are poor in spirit, that Jesus came to us when we did not have the ability on our own to save ourselves. He came to us, he gave to us, he cared for us, he loved on us, and he pulled us out of the place that we were in. I want you to remember that. And so he says that you're poor in spirit. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. It doesn't mean weak. It means meek, which like a bit of a horse, it's a strong animal, but it's under control. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, it says, blessed are those... Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my sake. Jesus is like, yay, persecution. We're not so pumped on it. But he says this, he says, rejoice in it. By the way, it means that you're on the team. If they hate you, it means you're on the team. If you're like, wow, I have no issues with anyone in culture. Uh Uh-oh. Well, you might not be proclaiming the gospel with your life or with your work, with your words. You may not be saying anything. You might be completely headed downstream with everyone else if there's not conflict and rubbing and persecution. Not overt persecution, but covert persecution, which we're seeing the rise of in America. But he says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, you're in good company. Not only with him, first and foremost, but with the other servants of God. And he says this, so he set this up. He says, look, it's about being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, having a hunger and a thirst and being merciful and pure in heart and a peacemaker. You'll be persecuted. He's not setting up a prideful calling. It's a humble but powerful calling. And he says this in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you can be. He doesn't say if you would like to be. He says, you are. The only question is how you're doing with that. He says, you are the salt of the earth. It's not a question. He's saying, you are. The only question is if you're being faithful in that calling. You are. You are salt being sprinkled on this earth. And in in, in first century, take your mind back there. Salt was not a nice to have. It wasn't like steak. You know what the steak is? Oh, it's good. A little salt on it. Let's do it. This was preserving of food so that your family could live. This was pre-refrigeration. Salt was not a nice to have. It was a must have for life. And he says, Christians, you're going to be sprinkled on this earth as this preservative. That's first and foremost to understand is this, it's a preservative, not this necessarily flavorful, though it had that. But in that sense, it was about packing meat, sustaining food without refrigeration. And we know that that salt doesn't reverse decay. Here comes cultural application. Doesn't reverse decay but it slows it. We know what happens to the world in the end. Do we not? We, we know the trajectory that the world apart from Jesus is on. He's not saying, hey, if you do good enough, everyone will be saved. What he's saying is that you do your part to slow the decay 
in culture. I've sprinkled you on the earth so that you would saturate all areas, every vestige of the community, so that you would slow the decay of the earth until I return. So it's first and foremost the preservative, but it's also, it's actually the root word is where we get our term salary. Because in that day, Roman soldiers received a portion of their wages in flat out salt. Like we go just get a bag from the grocery store. When they got that bag, it was my family continues to live. So much so that they would have it as a part of their salary. So it was part of the exchange for service. And as we set up in the Seven Mountains series, we won't go in, into depth, but we set up that, that the church, that Christianity, what we have in the person and the work of Jesus as our currency to culture is truth. At its very core, it's truth. It's not morals. It's not good behavior. It's truth. <clears throat> and so in every area of life, we come to it from a place of grace and truth because it says Jesus came to us in the fullness of grace and truth. And so our currency, our salary as Christians is truth. <clears throat> and it says this, it says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing. It's tough words. Jesus says the salt is you. If you lose your potency, it's good for nothing. It's good for nothing. And it says, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. How many of you have ever felt as Christians that your, your, your ideas, your, your, your faith, your work has been trampled over by the secular world, by the world. And you know what Jesus says? Stop whining and be the salt I've called you to be. Come to church and, oh, it's just awful at work. Jesus says, what are you doing at work? And so this call to be both preservative and currency, but if it loses its potency, it will be trampled by men. It says, you are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. We know light enables vision. It allows people to see. You remember that day in school, like way back in the day when your teacher told you, I fought with my teacher when she said this. I thought it was absolute, it was absolute joke. And I was like fourth grade, okay? I, she was like, that chair is not blue unless it has light on it. I'm like, that's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. That chair is blue in the dark or in the light. Doesn't matter. She says, no, the light reflects off it. The only, nothing has color apart from, I said, this is wrong. I'm going home and telling mom. This color exists predicated on light. It enables vision and color and vibrancy that we can see. And light also turns dark places into beautiful spaces. I talked about this doing, you know, photo shoots for, for clothing companies or different things. You go down to DTLA at night and you go into an abandoned warehouse and, and you like pee a little bit. You're like, this is a scary place. And then the sun comes up and the light shines through. And what happens? Instagram. Hey, this is awesome. What changed? Light entered a dark place and it became a beautiful space. And so he says, you're light. You, you go into dark places, lest we not forget. Jesus went to those parties, by the way. Christians act like he walked around like a Pharisee. Didn't. Went into dark places, but what he did in there was turn them into beautiful spaces. Jesus went into dark places. He went into vestiges of culture deemed untouchable by Christians. And he turned them into beautiful spaces and he says not to hide it he says nor verse 15 nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a life stand and it gives light to all who are in the house and he says this look very closely verse 16 let your light so shine before your small group of other christians right in your bible study what does it say men everyone 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good intentions. Is that what it says? Your good what? Your good works. So when they see your good works, what do they do? He says, and glorify your father in heaven. He says, when the Christian calling is taken seriously, you go into place with truth and with light. When you go in there, you turn dark places into beautiful spaces. And what happens is that when you are good at what you do, when you are faithful to your calling, when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what God has called you to do in any vestige, of culture. He says, what's going to happen is that dark place is going to begin to turn into a beautiful space. And he says, people will see your works and they will, they will be forced to reconcile that clearly you serve a living God. Not a dead white guy, not an ancient manuscript. We do not worship the Bible. We worship Jesus of the Bible and are informed about him by the Bible. We worship a true, living, active king. And when they see your good works, the world will be forced to recognize that you are clearly working for an active and living boss. And so this calling is great. It comes from a place of meekness and, and humility. But Ephesians 5, 1 says that we are to be imitators of God. And so what I want to happen is I want to have radically transform your Monday morning. I want to radically transform you as an employer I want God to radically transform you as an employee. I want him to radically transform your understanding as a customer as we interact with business. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at, I told you we're going to get very specific on the business side. We're going to take a look at seven business concepts. They are protected in some sense, but not demanded. Free market capitalism did not exist in the first century. Okay? But I want to show you the seven concepts. Not that they are demanded of, but that they are certainly allowed for and at times protected by what God has said because we have to put on a new lens because suffice it to say, anyone else here go to, to college, high school? There's not really, it's illegal before that. Do I have to ask the question? Like, <laughs> not gone to junior high? I need to talk to you, okay? But there, there is not, I would not say that there is a general move towards support of the business realm in the education system. Having gone to a Christian college even, you feel that. Okay? Like, hate, indifferent about him, our president has prolific business dealings. I think we're at the cusp of another four to eight years of intense scrutiny, not only of his business, but in business in general. It will be shown to be, at best, a necessary evil. At best something we just have to do, but that it's always greedy, it's always wrong, it always exploits, it never restores, it certainly can't be declared good. We're going to take a look at seven business principles, and they include productivity, ownership, employment, commercial transactions, just buying and selling, money, profit, and I save this one for last, inequality of possessions. So I don't teach the Sunday night until about seven. So we're good till about six 30. You ready? <laughs> Here's how the format's going to go. I want to set up a presupposition in the negative that you may have heard. You may have heard other people talk about or discuss. I'm going to set up a false presupposition and then the truth. I'm going to support it biblically. I'm going to tell us how the gospel calls us out of the temptation to use these elements for sin and calls us in to the business of glorifying God through them. Again, that list being productivity, ownership, employment, commercial transactions, money, profit, and inequality of possessions. You ready? You think we can do it by 6.30? We'll see.
Productivity, number one. The false presupposition is that working and producing goods and services is at best a necessary evil. It is the outcome of evil. It is a necessary evil because the world is broken. And yet we see that in Genesis 2, work was established before sin entered the world. Humans were created, they were married, and they were put to work before sin entered the world. Work was a part of a perfectly functioning harmony between God and man. I think it was Spurgeon who said, a perfect man is a working man. That doesn't mean that if you work, you're perfect. What it says, what he was saying was, two perfect men have ever walked the earth, Adam and Jesus, and they both worked. Now, Adam was there for the fall, but you need to know that he was working before it fell. And so producing... And I'm going to say this, you're going to hear this over and over. Producing goods and services is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities to glorify God, but also many temptations to sin. We have to have this balanced view. It's not all good or all bad. We have to understand where it can be good and where it can lead to sin. Producing and work in general is part of the purpose for which God has put us on earth. Genesis 2.15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. This was perfect shalom with God. And he said, Adam, you work. Genesis 128 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. That means bring forth its potential. I didn't just simply give you minerals and resources on earth for them to be stared at. He says, subdue it, bring its full potential to life. He says, having dominion over the fish of the sea. I love that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are better than fish. Congrats. It says, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on earth. Then the fall happened. And we know that Adam and Eve chose themselves over God. And it says in Genesis 3, 2, 1, my side business is currently a clothing company. I'm not wearing one of my shirts. I'm wearing one of Mikey Taylor's shirts right now. Um, And so... Most people don't know this. I'll give it to you because your family is that uh, people look at our clothing company. It's, they're like weird or skulls. They're like upside down and like dark motorcycle stuff. And don't worry, it's all gospel centered. All right, I can give you the verses. Okay. And so, but most people don't know that we predicated our entire desire to go into the clothing industry based on Genesis 3.21 that says, the Lord God made tunics of skin. What happens is that sin has entered the world God comes down, he pursues his people. He's the only God of any religion that pursues his people, doesn't ask them to pursue him. He comes to Adam and Eve, says, Adam, where are you? He finds him, he preaches the gospel. He says, I'm gonna send a solution. Here's part of the curse based on what you've done. Here's part of the curse. But he says, I'm gonna send a solution. I'm gonna send you a savior. I'm gonna put enmity between you two. So he preaches the gospel. So it was the Protevangelium, the first gospel. And then once he's preached the gospel, the very first restorative act in human history is that God made tunics of skin and he clothed them. Is that they were naked and ashamed. And God said, the solution is coming. I'm going to send a solution. And then he put a shirt on them. And he covered them and he cared for them and he gave them that which they didn't deserve. It's the first restorative act after preaching the gospel. And so since the fall, humans now have a need for goods and services. Unlike angels and demons who exist in the spiritual realm, humans, humanity, has a need for goods and services. And humans can now experience God-given desire to be productive and to make or do something useful for others. 
That desire causes us to exercise faithful stewardship so that we and others may enjoy the resources of the earth that God has made. So the gospel calls us out of the temptation to use productivity for sin. We're tempted to turn our hearts from God and to focus on material things for their own sake rather than God's glory. We're tempted to produce goods that bring monetary reward but are harmful and destructive and evil. And the gospel calls us into the business of glorifying God with our productivity by working to bring forth earth's potential as for the Lord and not for men, Colossians 3.23, by imitating God's attributes of wisdom and knowledge and skill and strength and creativity and sovereignty and order. I marvel at the fact that God did not create the fish before he created the ocean. Anyone else? True or false, God could have created everything that has ever existed by just saying now, right? What did he do instead? He spent six days working. It's a work week, by the way. There's no weekend in the Bible. There's a Sabbath. Some of you want to leave right now, okay? Don't touch my Saturday, pastor, okay? There's no weekend. There's a Sabbath, and God modeled that for us in that he worked six days when everything could have just existed. And it's, it's fascinating that he appears to have a plan and an organization. Why? Because he created the water before he put the fish in him. So how does he radically transform your planning process and your business and your initiative is by taking a look at the fact that God himself put forth a planning project, initiative, and task timeline. And then he spread it out. And he was diligent and creative. Anyone a scuba diver? Anyone been deep? Seen the weird things Jesus put at the bottom of the ocean? Anyone seen that? Even on land. Anyone seen an aardvark? Okay. <laughs> You think Jesus isn't creative? Like, he's making aardvarks for crying out loud. He's up there just going, <laughs> they're not going to know what to do with this one. There's no use for an aardvark. Okay, he's just... <laughs> just some weird looking animals coming by. He's like, monkeys are cool. I'm going to make 4,000 species of them. Give some weird colored butts. Uh, he's just going to... You all, you don't, you don't, I don't know if you know the same Jesus I know, but he is funny and creative and he plans and he strategizes. Like he had a plan and he implemented it and it was beautiful. And so he says, that's how you imitate me. Be creative, be diligent, be task oriented, have order and planning. It doesn't mean that we worship the plan, but that we can worship amidst the plan. And so the gospel calls us into glorifying God by working and bringing forth the earth's potential by imitating the attributes of God and by providing goods and services to others for their good and God's glory. And so in productivity, we see the opportunity to sin, but the calling to worship. Number two, ownership. The presupposition is that all ownership of property is a form of greed and therefore morally tainted. I love this. You see this in the socialist systems. They say it's bad when people own things. So what does the government do? They own things. <laughs> what is the government? people. It's bad when you own things, but if we own it, no worries. It's not working out very well. Have you seen the difference between North Korea and South Korea? Okay. I, I honestly believe the best thing we could do for Cuba is to inject a free market. And I, I'll go. I want to go scuba diving in Cuba. Like you would not believe. When they get a taste of that creativity, that freedom, and they're, if they're allowed to, things happen. Restorative works take place. The truth is that owning possessions is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities to glorify God but also many temptations to sin. Exodus 20, 15, the Ten Commandments, it says, thou shalt not steal. How can you steal something that isn't first what? Owned. Ownership is protected by the Bible. It doesn't say you must own stuff, but it says when you do, you must not steal. 
And so it affirms the validity of personal ownership of possessions or else the commandment wouldn't even make sense. Ownership is one way that we reflect, we imitate God's sovereignty over a tiny portion of creation. And so as God owns and stewards and nurtures and cares for the entirety of the universe, he says, this is your lot in life. This is what you have and you can grow it as we're gonna see. He said, but you steward and you manage that to my glory because that's a picture of what I'm doing with all of creation. When we care for our possessions, it gives us an opportunity to imitate the other attributes of God, which is wisdom and knowledge and beauty and creativity and love for others and kindness and fairness and independence and freedom and exercise of will and joy. The gospel calls us out of using ownership to sin. We're tempted to use our own resources to advance our own pride. We become greedy and accumulate wealth for its own sake while neglecting the needs of others. We're tempted to use our possessions foolishly, wastefully, abounding in luxury and self-indulgence rather than in humility and God-centered contentedness. And the gospel calls us into the business of glorifying God. And one of the ways, I asked if you had your seatbelts on, one of the ways we glorify God with our possessions is by giving them away. Some of you are like, I don't believe you, so I have four Bible verses. Hebrews 13, 16 says, do not forget to do good and to share. I love that. Every parent at some point has said, look, you have to share. You tell your kids that, right? You have to share. And then pastor's like, hey, parents, you have to share. And you're like, hold up. Wait a second. I don't know about that. I worked hard for this. I don't know if I have to share. Who are you to tell me I have to share? Right? We do it with our kids. You need to share. Bible's like, so do you. You're like, wait a minute. Hold on. He says, do good, share, for which such sacrifices God is well pleased. How do I please God with my stuff? Give it away. I don't know if that's right. Okay, so I have three more verses. It says, Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your produce. You know why we tithe? Who knows the theology of why we tithe? Gotta go big, go cosmic on this one. You know me, you know what the answer is gonna be. Just say it. It's that Jesus was God's tithe to the world. Is that he gave his firstborn. He gave his first fruits. People are like, oh, the church wants my money? Forget that. I want you to imitate a God who gave his first fruits to you. Be an imitator of God. And he says, and with the first fruits of all your produce, Acts 20, 35 says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak, parentheses, regardless of the GOP platform. That's what it says. In my Bible, I wrote it in there. It's wrong. Just relax. Some people are going to quit the church. I'm sorry. But it says this. It says, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. You must support the weak. And remember the words of Lord Jesus when he said, it is more, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Second Corinthians 9, 7 says, God loves a cheerful giver, not hoarder, not taker, not consumer, giver. The gospel calls us out of the temptation to use Ownership is a sin. We're tempted to use our own resources to advance our pride, as I said, and to use our possessions foolishly, and it calls us in to the business of glorifying God. Number three, employment. We having fun yet? Some of you are like, this list is seven? (laughs) Employment. Number three, false presupposition is that employing others and gaining profit from someone else's work is evil. You've heard this said. This 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 is what Marxist theory is predicated on, is that it is always exploitation. 
The truth is that hiring people to do work is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities to glorify God, but also many temptations to sin. Jesus himself said the laborer deserves his wages. Luke 10, 7. Employers, pay well. I, I marvel at the fact that I read Inc. magazines, Entrepreneur Magazine, and they're coming out with all these articles. Like, turns out, when employers take care of their employees, they stick around. Go back, check the study. I don't know. Who did the research? Right? John the Baptist to soldiers said, be content with your wages, employees. Well, I don't know about that one, right? Employers, pay well. Do well by your employees. Employees, be content. Work for restoration, be content. It's okay to have and to pay employees for the work, and it's okay to be an employee and receive pay for work. The gospel calls us out of the temptation to use employment for sin. Employees can be lazy, undermining, unsubmission, unsubmissive to established authority. If that's you today as an employee, stop. I love you too much to say any other word, but stop. Let Jesus regenerate you on that. Employers can be harsh, unfair, oppressive, exercise authorities selfishly, underpay workers, keep wages low, that workers have no opportunity to improve their standard of living. If that's you as an employer, stop. I care about you too much to say any other word, but stop. James 5, 4 says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. Gospel calls us into the business of glorifying God with employment as employers. And we are fair, honest, trustworthy, caring, and look out for our employees. We imitate a God who is fair, honest, trustworthy, caring, and looks out for his children. As employees, when we are diligent, hardworking, honest, trustworthy, and respectful, we reflect a God who is diligent, hardworking, honest, trustworthy, and respectful. And so even in employment, we're called into the business of worshiping God commercial transactions, buying and selling stuff. In my role as director of marketing, my CEO was very smart. He said, your title will be twofold. It will be director of marketing and digital commerce. So for the first time in the company's history, he said, all your marketing vision, strategy, implementation is great, grand. You're going to do that across the board. And all this work better translate into an increasing on the daily, weekly, monthly, year over year, an increasing amount of digital dollars. And so I specialize in online selling e-commerce, digital commerce, getting folks to buy stuff that we're selling. And it's good. It says this, false presupposition is that buying and selling goods and services is at best a necessary evil. The truth is that buying and selling goods and services is fundamentally good, provides many opportunities to glorify God, but also temptations to sin. It says this in Leviticus 25, 14. And if you sell anything to your neighbor, which assumes that you are selling things to your neighbor. Bible's not that hard, okay? It says if you sell things, which means they're selling things to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not wrong one another. I wish we could implement that at a federal level and a state level and an online e-commerce. I'm just gonna be my new terms of service on my website. So just be like, if you buy, we can't have issues. <laughs> Leviticus 25, 14, right? <laughs> You will not wrong me and I will not wrong you, okay? If it breaks, I'll send you a new one, but don't break it just because you want a new one, okay? It says both the buyer and the seller can do right in the transaction. 
just a little bit of evidence on that. Genesis 41, 57, Leviticus 19, 35 through 36, Deuteronomy 25, 13 through 16, Proverbs 11, 26, 31 and 16, Jeremiah 32, 25 and 42 through 44. Any questions? Good. We're moving on. And so it says, buying and selling are necessary for anything above subsistence level living. The bare necessities. Buying and selling are necessary for anything above that. It distinguishes us. Remember I said you're better than fish? Okay, still true. Halfway through the sermon. Okay, it's, that's one of the things that distinguishes us above what is known as lower creation. God set it up as God, humankind, and lower creation. We are not God, but we are not animals. One of the things that separates us from the animal kingdom is that we buy and sell goods and services. Family could only, if, if a family could only live on what it produces, that subsistence living, living clothes, and food. Rather, buying and selling allows for specialization, which increases the standard of living. The gospel calls us out of the temptation to sin. We're tempted to cheat, steal, and produce shoddy products, employers. Tempted to cheat, steal, and produce shoddy products. The gospel calls us into the business of glorifying God to deploy skills and creativity for human flourishing, for the good of others and the glory of God. So even in commercial transactions, we see an opportunity to glorify God as worship. Money, number five, the false presupposition is that money is the root of all evil. How many times have you seen that somewhere? Right? The other one that bugs me is the Ten Commandments. When people like, have it on their wall and it says, like, thou shalt not kill. It's not what it says. It's thou shalt not murder. It's a big difference. But how many of you say money is the root of all evil? The only problem is that they left some words out. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. First Timothy 6.10. Money is fundamentally, listen, fundamentally good and provides many opportunities to glorify God, but there are also temptations to sin. This is another human invention. Separates us from lower creation. Money is not intrinsically evil, but we can fall into sin. Money is the one thing, listen, I'm not bright, was a Marine, not smart. It says money is the one thing, I keep saying it says, or my notes. Okay, so money... <laughs> It says, like, what is he reading? <laughs> My notes. <laughs> I say, money is the one thing that everyone is willing to trade goods for because it is the one thing that everyone is willing to trade goods for. You get that? I'm a little smarter than you thought, right? It's the one thing that if I'm trying to give out, if I've got shirts and I make shirts and I give it to Joey, I haven't seen you in a while. What's up, man? How are you? Good. Is it awkward to talk like this? So if I give it to Joey and he goes and gets milk with it, maybe the guy with milk doesn't need any more shirts. So I, I gave you a shirt and now he's got that that he wants to give. The only thing that could cause Joey and I to have a relationship, you to have a relationship with the grocer or the butcher is a mediator. It can't be a raw material. It has to be something that everyone is willing to trade for. Why? Because they can get any other thing trade for. It levels the playground. It, it mediates interactions between products and goods and services and necessities and families and skills. If you only have one kind of good, people may not want it or won't need it after you've traded to them once. If I give shirts to Joey and then he gives me milk, so oh, cool, I got milk for a week. And next week I'm like, hey, got more shirts. He's like, I already have shirts. I'm like, but you're the only guy that has milk. Like, what? I, he's like, but I got 10 shirts and they have like skulls on them. It's weird, like... What are you doing over there, Mark? Right? Like, it's the only thing that I can continue to exchange with him that he won't not need anymore. 
And so money enables us. It's also, so if you have one kind of good, people may not want it or need it after you've traded with them once, but it also enables us to assign value to goods and services. So as, as, as an entrepreneur, I've created a clothing line where I buy blank shirts and I have a designer put a design on them. We wipe ink. We believe we've added five time the mark value to that blank t-shirt. It's now cooler. It's now has more value. No one says that. We believe that. We put it to the market and then they assign value to it. So if I can make a shirt for five bucks and sell it for 35 bucks, it's because I've added $30 of value to this person. And that's where Mark's got it wrong. He believed price was based off cost of goods and effort to put it together. What's true is that value is predicated on the market, right? Think of like baseball cards. Have you thought about the absurdity of baseball cards? What is a baseball card? It's a piece of cardboard. You pack stuff in cardboard and throw it in the garage, right? It is a piece of cardboard with a picture on it. If I have a Honus Wagner baseball card, why on earth is some dude in Maryland going to give me 20 grand for it? Is that actually worth 20 grand? No, I got boxes I'll sell you if you want cardboard. He believes that having a piece of that history is worth 20 grand to him. The market assigns value. We add value and then the market assigns it. And it's a good thing. It means we're contributing to raising the standard of all. And so they assign the value in goods and services and money allows us to do that. Money is simply a tool for use. It makes voluntary exchanges more fair, less wasteful, and far more extensive. It can't be evil or God would have nothing to do with it. And then Haggai 2.80 says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. And the gospel calls us out of the temptation to use money for sin. It's very powerful. It comes with a heavy responsibility. Many become ensnared to the love of money and it turns their hearts away from God. Jesus says you cannot serve God and money in Matthew 6, 24, but you can serve God with your money. You cannot serve God and money, but you can serve God with your money. We are warned against accumulating too much that we hoard for ourselves and don't use for good. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The gospel calls us into the business of glorifying God with our money. It enables us to invest and extend, expand our stewardship, thus imitating God's sovereignty and his wisdom over that which he stewards. It enables us to meet our own needs, thus imitating God's independence. It enables us to give to others, thus imitating God's grace and mercy. It enables us to give to the church and to evangelism, thus bringing the message of the gospel to others. And so even with money, we're called into the business of worshiping God with our money, not worshiping money as God. Profit. Profit is a false presupposition that producing goods and services and selling them for more than it costs to produce is evil, exploitive. Truth is that earning a profit is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities to glorify God, but also temptations to sin. For those of you that don't know, maybe younger folks, profit is simply a business term. It essentially means selling a product for more than it costs to produce it. That's it. Jesus worked as a for-profit carpenter that would assemble the materials, do a job, and charge more than it cost him to assemble the materials and do the job. And so if you produce 100 loaves of bread for 100 bucks and sell for 200, you've got $100 profit. 
What cost me a dollar to produce is worth $2 to my community in value. It shows that our work has added value to the materials used. Luke 19 is the parable of the minas. Jesus is telling a story of a nobleman. He's teaching his disciples, calling 10 of his servants and giving them one mina each. It's about three months wages, okay? Three months wages. And he told them, I love this, super gangster. Jesus in Luke 19, 13 says, do business until I come. Oh, it's great. I'm gonna make that a shirt, okay? Do business until I come. He says, Here's the investment, do business until I come. And he's telling a parable, ultimately it points to himself, but he says to the nobleman, do business until I come. One of the servants earned a thousand percent profit. Woo, a thousand percent. I used to work at a skincare company. Ladies, we put some goop in a canister for two bucks and y'all see a $150 product. Like that's amazing, right? Guys are nodding their head, women are mad right now. Okay, we... We ran minimum 1,000% markups on skincare. We, we, we were, and, and someone after the first service came up, he's like, I did a little skincare too. It's like the canister actually costs more than the goop. 100%. Pennies. Pennies. You know how fast food makes all their money? Drinks. It's not even the food. Drinks. We pay for drinks. That's all the margin they need. Right? Ladies, love you to death. Sell a lot of stuff to you. But like we, like, we get... We get a thousand, you can get a thousand percent markup on stuff. People are like, that is absurd. That is exploitative. And Jesus says, you know what I'm going to do with the guy that got a thousand percent? I'm going to give him 10 cities. Right? The nobleman says, that was a good investment. There's another guy that got 500% profit. Nobleman says, you will be over five cities. And there's a servant who made no profit. Guess what happened? He was rebuked. They took his mina and they gave it to the dude that did a thousand percent. That doesn't seem very socialist. I know. (laughs) The nobleman represents Jesus, of course, who went into a far off country and returned with a reward for his servants. The obvious application to stewardship of spiritual gifts and ministry that Jesus entrusts to us. But in order for it to make sense, we must assume that good stewardship in God's eyes includes the expanding and multiplying of whatever talents and resources and times and treasures God has entrusted to us. Surely it can't exclude money and material possessions because God has entrusted those to us as well. There's also the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, if you're struggling with the minas, makes a similar point, but on an even greater scale. He doesn't say three months wages, he says 20 years. A parable of talents, he says, I'm gonna invest, give me 20 years of your savings account, Thousand Oaks. Give me your IRA. Give me your portfolio. Give me your investment debt. Give me your investment for your retirement. And the similar assumption is made in the approval given to the ideal wife in Proverbs 31. Ladies, you've all heard Proverbs 31. Okay, I need you to take this to heart as a husband. It says this in Proverbs 31 verses 16 through 20. It says, she considers a field and buys it. My wife has yet to buy me a field. Okay, (laughs) we're working on it weekly. She's like, I want a house with a bigger yard. I'm like, where's my field? (laughs) Proverbs 31. (laughs) I'll worry about the house. (laughs) Give me a field. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the staff and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand, ladies and gentlemen, to the poor. Yes, she reaches 
out her hands to the needy. The Christian call is not one of consumerism and hoarding. It's one of giving and diligence. The gospel calls us out of the temptation to use profit for sin. We're tempted to use disparity in power and in knowledge to take advantage of people. We're tempted to create a monopoly or necessary on a necessary good in order to charge excessive prices that deplete people's resources. The gospel calls us into the business of glorifying God by stewarding resources well and multiplying them so that we have an increased ability to help others. I'm a guy that likes to talk in short, oh, not short, you're like, no way. Um, but in, I'm a marketing guy. I, I like not jingles, but the modern day jingle. I like headlines and, and subtitles. And someone recently asked me, said, what's your philosophy as an entrepreneur? What's your philosophy for business? And I said, um, if I can remember it exactly, I should have put it in my notes. It would have made for a much smoother transition than the one I'm currently trying to pull off. But what it says, what I'm saying is that my goal is to take better, is to make more money to take care of better people so we can take care of more people. Is that we're to expand our business, we can take better care of the people we have and take care of more people. If I can't take better care, then I don't get more people. But once I can take really good care of the people that I have under my umbrella, then we can start to expand it and continue to take better care of more people. That's the call of the Christian business owner is to take better care of more people so that they would see that God takes better care of more people. And so we're called into the business of glorifying God, even with profit. And this last one, I left it for last because we have to do a little bit of work. The false presupposition is that the inequality of possessions, inequality of possessions, the fact that some people have more than others is unequivocally wrong. The truth is that some inequality of possessions is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities to glorify God but also many temptations to sin. And some extreme inequalities are wrong in and of themselves. Admittedly, you may be surprised to think that some inequalities of possessions can be good and pleasing to God. The Bible teaches us that there are varying degrees of reward in heaven. By the way, it's all gonna be awesome. It doesn't matter. Like if you're a street sweeper, by the way, the streets are gold. It's fine. Like it's awesome, okay? There are varying degrees of reward in heaven and various degrees of stewardship that God entrusts with people on earth. Remember remember the parable of the Minas. Jesus said to one, you will have authority over 10 cities. To the other one, he said five. He rewarded differently based on diligence and their effect. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That is the unequivocal Understanding that we are all the same before God. We are all to appear before the judgment seat that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There are varying degrees of reward in heaven and varying degrees of punishment in hell. Again, that's 2 Corinthians 5.10. Inequalities are necessary in a world that requires a great variety of tasks to be done. The example I like to use is a CEO and a cashier. CEO, you hear at college campuses, it, it's absurd that a CEO would make more in a week than that cashier would make in an entire year. I say, no, it's not. Because that CEO deals with decisions that affect every part of the business. On any given Tuesday morning, 
he makes decisions greater than the sum of the decisions made at the cash wrap for an entire year. It makes a ton of sense. I have a wicked smart CEO who loves Jesus and serves his church faithfully in Malibu. I love that he makes way more than me. Why? Because the decisions he makes have way more gravity. And the reason I'm able to make decisions in my role is because he's making decisions so that I can have that role. And so it absolutely makes sense, not only in a variety of tasks, but in a variety of industries. I love metal music. Some of you know that and it freaks you out. I, and I listen to, I don't say Christian metal bands because they don't describe themselves as that. They, they believe like I do as an entrepreneur that I'm a Christian with a company. It is not a Christian company. We don't need that. No, I don't think Jesus had like a fish on the back of his truck. Like, yo, new, new covenant carpentry. Like, you know, like, <clears throat> he just did really good work. They're like, where's that porch from? It's like, homie, Jesus, you should, you should check with him. It's a really good porch. Like, Jesus did it. Okay. But, but I love metal music. <clears throat> okay. And, and because of my clothing company, I have like some inside. I'm like friends with some of my favorite metal bands. It's insane. If you follow me on Instagram, I'm sorry. Okay. And so I, I absolutely love it. And I recently went to a band called Wolves at the Gate. One of my favorite bands are out of Ohio. Christian, love the Lord, preach the gospel. They go into a dark place and they make it a beautiful space. They go on tour with secular bands. They go forefront in the darkest places of LA and around the country and they turn a light on. Radical depiction of the gospel, and they go in and, and and Nick, the lead singer, texts me. He's like, "Hey, are you coming to the show at the Roxy?" I said, "Dude, of course." He's like, "Let me get you on the guest list." I said, "Nick, I already bought my ticket, dude. Like, I love you guys. Like, I can't wait to hang out with you. I got to hang out with the band before and after. Give them some shirts. Do that whole thing." I was like, "I am glad to pay twenty bucks for this ticket." And I went. I had a great time. I also recently went to Minnesota because I was asked to perform the wedding of one of my closest high school buddies. And I noticed that the airlines didn't give me a free ticket. They're both ticket systems. They're both a couple of hours. Why not? I also noticed that it wasn't 20 bucks. It was like 400. And then it was 500 for my extra bag. Okay. I told you some inequality is absolute sin. Okay. And so I noticed that it was like 400 bucks for three hours. And this was $20 for three hours. Why? Because Nick, I love you, dude. You guys are amazing. That was about 20 bucks. I walk onto that plane. It's like, hey, pilot, you pretty good at your job? You deserve my 400 bucks. Do your thing, okay? <laughs> it's not like going to a metal concert. You're flying me across the country, right? You deserve thousands and thousands of dollars. Even though they're both tickets, it's about three and a half hours. Same deal. Different industries, not just different tasks, right? Pray for pilots, right? Like you, you definitely. Does that make sense? Is that the clearest illustration you've ever heard in your entire life? Okay. <laughs> And so it's not just a variety of tasks, but a variety of industries. Jesus is concerned with our faithfulness amid inequality. I got to go. And so we saw the poor widow and put, put a penny in the offering. So he called his disciples, it says in Mark 12, 43 through 44. So, so he called his disciples to himself and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor woman has put in more than all those who have given to your treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty and put in all she had her whole livelihood James 2.5 says, Has God not chosen the poor of the world and the rich in, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love? Look, for those of you that give, and I know it's tough in California, for those of you who do give faithfully and it hurts, I want you to know that Jesus sees and Jesus is pleased. 
He knows that you give out of tough times and that you are faithful. Jesus sees. It also exhorts those who have large resources to be content in what God has entrusted to them, not their riches. Paul tells us that they will face greater temptations. I do not envy the wealthy. I don't. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10 says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men into destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. God calls us out of the temptation to use inequality of possessions for sin. Those who have been given much are tempted to be proud, selfish, to think highly of themselves and to trust themselves instead of God. Those who have been given less are tempted to be covetous, jealous, and to not trust in the position that God has given them. The gospel calls us into the business of glorifying God that those who give despite having little are seen by God and honored for their sacrifice. Those who have been given much are called by God to imitate God's generous giving to the church and to those who have less. Let us not forget that Christians are called to help the poor and seek to overcome their poverty. Here's why. Because at one point, poor in spirit, Jesus came to you. At one point, unable to pull yourself out of the mess that you had created or that the world had created for you doesn't matter. Jesus came to those who are poor in spirit, an external God, an external hand, an external source of love and grace and mercy, and he pulled us out. So how dare Christians, how dare we, how dare I believe that I'm not called to imitate what Jesus himself did for me with others? in my station in life. And so we were poor in spirit and there are some who are poor in possessions. And so as Jesus came to us poor in spirit and loved on us in ways we can't fathom, we go into places, even those who are simply poor in possession and we love and we give and we lift them up. Why? Because God loved and he he gave and he lifted us up. We've been called away from the use of business and their elements for sin and called into business as worship. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And that humility and that poor in spirit that we are comes at the recognition of how great you are. And I pray that as we go into this week, regardless of station in life, possession count or title or job or industry, that we would simply seek to worship you in every vestige of our life as employers, as employees, as private sector, public sector, retired, nonprofit, that we would seek to glorify you, that we would be renewed in your truth and your grace, that we would worship you alone, that we would put our eyes on you alone, even as we leave here now that we no longer interact with business the same, that we no longer engage as business owners and employees the same, that it would be a restored view of our ability to every step of the way worship you. Jesus, I thank you for that opportunity. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. So excited about what you're gonna do in my own week this week and in the week of those that are here as we seek to glorify you every step of the way for our good, Jesus, and your glory. Amen.